men. Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 12. Now, considering the fact that the Bible doesn't pinpoint the exact date for the creation of the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 through 11 covers approximately a period of about 2,000 years. Interestingly, from Genesis 12 through Revelation 22, the rest of the Bible also occurs over a period of 2,000 years. Notice God spends just a few verses on creation, but he spends the bulk of the Bible on redemption. And the reason? Well, it takes no love to create, but it takes intense love to redeem, especially when what you're wanting to retrieve has sinned against you. That's why the Bible is an epic love story. In Genesis 1 through 11, God works with mankind as a whole, but with very little success. In fact, chapter 11 ends with a worldwide revolt. God has to bust up the mutiny. But in chapter 12 of Genesis, God's strategy for redeeming a fallen world changes. No longer will he work with mankind as a whole. Now God chooses one family through which he'll redeem all mankind and all the world. As I said last time, Genesis 11 reveals Satan's plan at the time. He focused his revolt on a man named Nimrod, a place called Babel, and a means through fear. But beginning in chapter 12, God counters Satan with a man of his own, Abram, with a place called Canaan, and with a means called faith. And the rest of the Bible is all about the salvation that God orchestrates through Abram's family, the Hebrews. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 is God's call to Abram. Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Abram Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldees. It was the hub and hotbed of ancient civilization. In fact, secular history says that bathtubs were first used in Ur. I thought you'd want to know that. Yet God moved Abram west until he arrived in a narrow strip of land called Canaan. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says of Abram, He went out not knowing where he was going. Abram was a man of faith, willing to go as God commanded, even though he wasn't told where. When he arrives in Canaan, God makes Abram a threefold promise. First, he promises him a track of land. Second, his descendants will become a great nation. And third, through his family, the whole earth will be blessed. This marks the Abrahamic covenant. Write this down, it's important. It includes three things, sod, the land, seed, the nation, and salvation, the blessing that will come to the whole world. And this covenant gets repeated to Abram in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, and 22. God's serious about this covenant. Then it gets repeated to his son Isaac in Genesis 26, 
and even to his grandson Jacob in Genesis 28 and 35. Obviously, as far as God is concerned, this is an extremely strategic covenant. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant is the bedrock of the rest of the Bible. It's foundational. Genesis 12 to Revelation 22 will fill in the details of this threefold promise. If you study this covenant, the covenant God made to Abraham, you'll understand the Bible. Remember those three words, sod, seed, and salvation. Now in Genesis 13, verses 7 through 9, we learn what motivated Abram. Everywhere this man went, he built an altar to the Lord. Abraham could have dug wells for water, or built homes for comfort, or even forts for protection. Instead, he built altars. His top priority was not provision, or comfort, or protection, but worship. Abram built altars to worship. You know, in the course of your lifetime, you'll probably build a home, a career, perhaps even help build a church. But on your journey, will you build altars? Will you stop from time to time and worship God? Of the Old Testament heroes, Abram stands out as a man of faith. Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And this is a vital verse. It's quoted four times in the New Testament. Four times, no less. This is the verse the Apostle Paul leans on to prove that we obtain and maintain a right standing with God, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of our faith in what God has promised. It teaches that all God's blessings are received by faith and faith alone. The faith that inherits God's blessing is illustrated in chapter 15 by how God seals his covenant with Abram. According to custom, Abram slaughters a series of animals. He cuts them in cross sections from head to toe, and then he arranges the animal halves into a quarter. The two parties entering the agreement would walk side by side between the animal halves as a way of committing themselves to the terms set forth in the covenant. This was the ancient's way of cutting a deal. It's where we get the expression. In light of this custom, when Abram finished slicing the animals, he waited on God, for he expected God to literally walk with him through the animal halves. He waited all day, even into the evening. Finally, as he was nodding off, about to go to sleep, God appeared to him in the form of a burning torch and a smoking censer. This should be familiar. Later, he'll appear to Israel as a cloud by day and a fire by night. And instead of walking with Abram through the animal halves, God walked through the corridor all by himself. A huge deal. All Abram did was wake up and believe. And here is what God was conveying. Salvation is not a team effort. It's not up to you to meet God halfway. God's blessing is not received by God doing half the work and the recipient doing half the work. No, no, no. 
God does all the work. God takes on the sole responsibility of earning the blessing. All we do is wake up to the fact and believe. And because of Abram's faith, God gave him a new name. In Genesis 17, verse 5, God tells him, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham means father of many nations. But there was a problem with Abraham fulfilling this name. Before a man can be the father of many nations, he first has to be a father. And at the time, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was 75 years old, well past childbearing age. And yet Sarah came up with a plan. She decides to give Abraham conjugal privileges to her maidservant, Hagar, so that he can birth them a son by proxy. It worked. Hagar has a son named Ishmael. But the plan backfires. Hagar gets haughty, Sarah gets jealous, and Abraham is caught between two fighting females. Not a good place to be. Realize Abraham's mistake. He tried to help God out in the flesh, in his own efforts. He sought to do God's will his way. God's will should always be done God's way and in God's time. And even today, the children of Abraham's natural-born son, Jacob, and his descendants, the nation of Israel, are in conflict with the children of Ishmael, the Arabs. Abraham's heirs have been paying for their father's mistake for the last 4,500 years. Well, finally, in Genesis 21, Sarah has her promised son. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural birth. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is now 90 when Isaac is born. Isaac was born 25 years after God's promise was first given, and yet God was faithful to fulfill his promise. In fact, when God makes you a promise, remember, you don't reap it in the same season that it's sown. There's always a meantime. There's got to be an in-between time. An interval of time between the giving of that promise and the receiving of that promise. Thus, faith must always be willing to wait. Well, Genesis 22 records Abraham's great test of faith. God orders Abraham in verse 2, chapter 22. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's amazing. The mountain that God picks out is the very same spot where 2,000 years later, God will offer his only son, Jesus. Mount Moriah is today at the heart of Jerusalem. Now, Abraham is about to bring down his knife on the throat of Isaac. When suddenly God tells him to stop, Abraham has passed the test. That's when he looks over in the brush and he sees a ram that he can sacrifice in Isaac's place. That ram was a foreshadowing of Jesus, who's now our substitute. And in verse 14, Abraham appropriately calls this place Jehovah-Jireh, or the Lord will provide. Ishmael, Hagar's son, is later sent away. 
Whereas Isaac goes on to marry a woman named Rebekah, who has twin sons, Esau and Jacob. The name Esau means hairy, whereas Jacob means heel catcher. Apparently, Jacob came out of his mother's womb holding on to his brother's heel. And this foreshadowed their future relationship. For these brothers become lifelong rivals. Jacob was a sneaky dude. He caught Esau in a moment of weakness. He was hungry. And Jacob swapped Esau a bowl of chili for the family's birthright. He swindled Esau and later he deceived his dad. For Jacob strapped fur over his arms to make his nearly blind dad think that he was Esau. Jacob duped Isaac into granting him the father's blessing in God's covenant. And surprisingly, it was a blessing that his father never reversed. It's amazing that God loved a person like Jacob, but he did. In fact, the Bible tells us that God chose Jacob over Esau. It was probably because of his desire for spiritual things. It was because of his faith in God's promise. Though Jacob was weak, though he was carnal, though he was uh, sneaky, he was also a man of faith, and he trusted in God's promise. Jacob's a good example. It's never our virtue or our goodness that earns God's favor. It's always our faith in God's promises. And of all the examples mentioned in the Bible, Jacob stands out. Now, Jacob moves away from home, and he falls in love with a beautiful girl named Rachel. He's willing to work seven years to earn her hand in marriage. But on his wedding night, the old deceiver Jacob gets deceived. What goes around comes around. Rachel had an older, oh, sort of a homely looking gal, a sister, who her dad Laban wanted to marry off first. So he slips Leah, not Rachel, into Jacob's tent. Well, since there are no electric lights in the honeymoon cottage, Jacob doesn't discover the swap until daybreak. Ultimately, Jacob goes on to marry both women. And by Leah, Rachel, and their two maids, Jacob sires 12 sons who become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. The transforming moment in Jacob's life occurs in Genesis 32 when he returns home. He's asleep when a man jumps out from the bushes. He probably thought it was Esau trying to exact revenge. Jacob and this man, they wrestle all night long. When the sun comes up, Jacob realizes this isn't Esau. It's a messenger from God. He's been running from God his whole life. Now he strengthens his grasp. And he asks God for his blessing. The angel he's been wrestling with touches Jacob's hip to loosen his grip. And God blesses Jacob. But from then on, Jacob walks with a limp. You know, often God's blessings require our crippling. Sometimes God has to make us weak on our own before we can receive his strength. Later, God gives Jacob a new name. He calls him Israel which means governed by God. Of Israel's 12 sons, Joseph becomes his favorite. And this makes his brothers jealous, especially when their father gives to Joseph a fancy multicolored coat. 
One day, they feign Joseph's death. They sell their sibling as a slave to a caravan headed for Egypt. They think they'll never see him again. But oh, how wrong they were. The story of Joseph is an amazing example of God's providence. Providence is God's overarching will. As Christians, we believe that God is sovereign over all things and circumstances, that God is in control, that there's no such thing as luck or fate or chance. God may not cause all events, but at the very least, he allows them. Reminds me of the little boy who fell from the top of a tree. As he pummeled towards the earth, the people below heard him screaming, God, save me! God, save me! Suddenly, there was a quiet. Everyone looked up into the tree when they heard a little boy say, Never mind, God, I caught my pants on a limb. As if God had nothing to do with those pants getting hooked on the tree. Often God's purposes are unknown to us as they were at first to Joseph. But God does have a purpose for all things, even the bad things that happen to us. This week, Gary posted a quote on my Facebook page. It goes as follows. If you can trust a puzzle company to make sure that every piece is in the box to complete the puzzle, why can't you trust God that every piece of your life is there for a reason? How true that is. Friends, God has a plan for every piece. It's amazing the difficult pieces that Joseph endured. After being sold as a slave, he found himself as a servant of an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. Joseph was promoted until Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Joseph literally ran. When Mrs. Potiphar grabbed him, he dropped his coat and fled. That's what we need to do when we're tempted. Flee from the temptation situation. Sadly, Mrs. Potiphar, though, used Joseph's coat to falsely accuse him, having thrown into prison. There behind bars, he came in contact with a baker and a butler and with God's help, interpreted their dreams. Later, when Pharaoh had a dream, the butler remembered Joseph and called for his assistance. God gave Joseph the interpretation to the Pharaoh's dream, and the king was so impressed, he promoted Joseph to second in command in all of Egypt. About this time, there was a famine in Canaan. Joseph's father, Jacob, and his brothers had nothing to eat, So the sons came to Egypt to purchase food. And guess who they met? Guess who they had to deal with? Their long-lost brother Joseph was now in the position to save their lives. At first, they were afraid that Joseph would take revenge. They didn't know their brother. I love it when Joseph says to them in Genesis 50 verse 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God can take negative, painful, difficult pieces and use them for good. As we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And thus the story of Abraham's family, and that's what you want to write down on your sheet, pull it out. Fill in those two blanks. Abraham's family consists of Isaac, Jacob, 
and 12 tribes. The next slide. So here's how we'll remember it. Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes. That's only 10. That's why we're going to go. 10 and 2 is 12. Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes. And then I want you to write down Abraham's covenant or the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, which really looks down through the ages. The rest of the Bible is all about the Abrahamic covenant. So what we're going to do, we're going to remember it by putting on our binoculars. We're looking down into the future. The Abrahamic covenant, it includes sod, piece of land, seed, a nation, and salvation, the blessing that will come upon the family of Ab- through the family of Abraham upon the whole earth. Sod, seed, salvation. So we got Abrahamic covenant. I mean, we got Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, Abrahamic covenant, sod, seed, salvation. All right, great. Now, the original plan for the family of Israel was to come to Egypt only until the famine had subsided in Canaan. But they ended up staying in Egypt for 400 years, at first as honored guests of Joseph. But after Joseph's death, the pharaohs that followed subjected them to slavery. With Hebrew labor, the Egyptians built the pyramids, other monumental structures. For 400 years, the Hebrews cried to God for someone to deliver them. And so again, on your paper, I want you to write down on the next couple of lines, Egyptian bondage. Egyptian bondage. And here's how we'll remember it. Egyptian bondage. You remember, you remember, uh, you remember that song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh? So we'll just do the little dance. Egyptian bondage, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. And they were in bondage for how long? 400 years, write it down, 400 years. Now, when Moses was born, the Pharaoh issued an order to kill all the male babies of Israel. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, credits his actions to a prophecy that was uttered in the Egyptian court at the time that from among the Hebrews, God would raise up a deliverer. Hebrews 11 verse 23 reads, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Oh, but you can't hide a crying baby for long. And eventually, Moses' mom made him a watertight basket, set it adrift on the Nile, trusting God to find Moses a home. Again, by an act of God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter happened to be bathing in the river that day when she found the basket. She took Moses as her child. And she actually called his own mother to be, her, to be his nurse. Moses ended up taught by his Hebrew mom while raised in the Egyptian court. At age 40, Moses sided with his people. When a fellow Hebrew was abused by an Egyptian taskmaster, Moses took matters into his own hands and he killed the man. His actions were exposed and Moses had to flee to Midian. Moses lived to be 120 years old, and you can summarize his life as follows. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody. 
40 years on the backside of a desert learning that he was a nobody, and 40 years showing what can happen when a nobody becomes a somebody with God. Moses meets God on the mountain called Sinai. And there God appears to Moses in the form of a bush that's on fire, yet doesn't burn. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, Yahweh says to Moses, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Realize the soil on Mount Sinai was ordinary soil. What made it holy wasn't some special composition, but that God had set it apart, had dedicated it for His purpose. The word holy means to set apart. And the same was true of Moses' rod. It was a simple shepherd's staff. But when God tells Moses to throw it on the ground, it turns into a snake. When he tells Moses to pick it up again, it turns back into a rod. But no longer is it called Moses' rod, but now it's called the rod of God. You see, it's now been dedicated or made holy to God's service. And this is what makes a person holy. It's not that you're better than others. Holy people are ordinary folk, but they're holy in that they're dedicated. They've dedicated themselves to God for His special use and for His purposes. Well, on the mountain, God reveals a special name for Himself. When Moses asks, who will I say has sent me? God answers him, tell them, I am who I am has sent me, has sent you. God is the great I am. He's the only self-existent one in all the universe. You and I and all men are dependent on God for the air we breathe and our next breath. But God needs nada. That's why when God goes with Moses, Moses now has all that he needs. And friend, when God goes with you, you also have all that you need. Well, when Moses returns to Egypt, he tells the Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5 verse 1, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Of course, the stubborn king refuses to bow to Moses' command. What do you expect from Yul Brynner? And God has to use ten plagues to pry his people out of Pharaoh's clutches. Moses turns the Nile to blood. Frogs cover the land, as well as lice, flies, mad cow disease. A plague of boils, a hailstorm, locusts, and a daytime darkness. You know, it's interesting. The Egyptians worshipped the sun god, Ra. So when God brought about the darkness, he was proving his superiority over their idol. This was true of all ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt. Each plague was designed to show how that the true God was superior to the false gods of Egypt. In fact, the Egyptians also thought their king, the Pharaoh himself, was God. That's why the tenth plague targeted the Pharaoh's firstborn son and heir to the throne. The final plague was the death of the firstborn across all of Egypt. And yet God provided protection for his own people. The Hebrews were to sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts and thresholds of their home. 
So when the plague of death came through the Hebrew neighborhood, it would pass over the houses that had applied the blood. Even to this day, the Jews eat a meal and recall that night, it's called Passover. Understand, it didn't matter the character or the moral purity of the folks in the house. If they were saved or not, depended solely on whether they trusted God's promise and applied the door, I mean the blood, to the doorposts. And this is a lesson for us. God's salvation has nothing to do with your goodness or your purity, but whether or not you have believed in God's promise and applied the blood of Jesus to the posts of your heart. Well, when the Hebrews left Egypt, Moses led them to the edge of the Red Sea. For a moment, the people thought it was a disastrous move. They looked up and they saw the Egyptian army attacking from one side and the deep blue sea on the other side. They were trapped. But Moses raises God's rod and the waters part. It was just one of a series of miracles where God proved to his people Israel that he could be trusted. God fed his people with miraculous manna and brought water from a rock. The word manna means, what is it? They weren't sure. But every day, God's provision, these little mini white wafers appeared on the ground. Imagine feeding three million people, three meals a day, 365 days a year. Someone added it all up that the bread needed for such a task amounted to two and a half million tons a year. Yet God was faithful to provide his people this daily miracle. You'd think heavenly bread would satisfy these folks, but it didn't. Before long, Israel began to complain about the lack of variety on the menu. They murmured about the manna, even found fault in Moses' leadership. In Exodus 16, verse 8, Moses warns them, Your murmurings are not against us but against the Lord. And we should be careful about our grumblings. We should be careful about our complainings. For when we grumble about the provision that God has given us, we're not grumbling about our food or our house or our church or our pastor. We're questioning the goodness and the wisdom of God. Hey, work to change your situation if you want. Pray about that situation. Whatever you do, don't complain. So let's write it down. Moses, and we're going to write down, let my people go. When we say it, we're going to put some emphasis on it. We're going to go, let my people go. And they're going to write down 10 plagues and Red Sea. So we've got Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, the Abrahamic covenant, sod, seed, salvation, the Egyptian bondage, Moses, let my people go, 10 plagues in Red Sea. Everybody with me? Okay. After their exodus from Egypt, Moses took the Hebrews to Mount Sinai where he had met God. There they received God's law. And not just the top ten, the Ten Commandments, 
but 613 different laws. There were laws that governed personal interactions and business affairs and governmental issues. The law of Moses was specifically designed for the land that they had been promised and for life in that land. Later, Jesus said that the law was a description of how to love God and how to love our fellow man. The law described love, but it couldn't produce love. That's why Christians no longer follow the law. We follow Jesus who puts God's love in our hearts. Well, Moses was also given plans, literally blueprints, for the construction of the tabernacle and all its furniture. The tabernacle was a mobile tent that they could transport whenever Israel broke camp and moved. They followed the cloud by day and the fire by night. Outside the tabernacle was an altar where the priest offered sacrifices and worshipped God. God's presence dwelt in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. His glory resided over a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, a replica of God's throne in heaven. One of the twelve tribes, the tribe of Levi, was placed in charge of the tabernacle. God's law to the Levites is recorded in the book that bears their name, Leviticus. The tabernacle, its sacrifices, and the feasts of Israel were all symbolic of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament book of Hebrews explains how the tabernacle and later the temple and its ministry foreshadows and illustrates the work of our Savior Jesus. And so, on your papers, write down, Old Covenant, the law. Old Covenant, the law, and we'll remember it by a book, the law. Two tablets, maybe, or the law, the book, the law. The Old Covenant, the law. All right. Now Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on top of Mount Sinai. And in his absence, the people panicked. Rather than walk by faith, the Hebrews built a God that they could see and could control, an idol. With the help of Moses' brother, no less, Aaron, the people constructed a golden calf and they worshipped it in perverse ways. When Moses returned from the mountaintop and saw it, he threw down and broke the two stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Moses said in Exodus 32 verse 30, You have sinned a great sin. I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And amazingly, Moses tells God that he is willing to have his own name blotted out of God's book if the Hebrews can go to heaven in his place. Of course, it'll take Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, not Moses, to save God's people. But imagine being willing to go to hell so that someone else can be saved. This was Moses' love for Israel. Do we even come close to having that kind of concern for the people around us? I doubt it. We should never forget every hour 5,417 people die around the world and most of them go to hell. Do we even care? God isn't asking us to go to hell for them. Just go to their house around the corner. Just go to their office cubicle next to yours. Or just go to your knees and pray for their salvation. Are we willing? 
Well, in Exodus 33, verse 18, while on the mountaintop, Moses asks God, please show me your glory. This should be the desire of every Christian, to see God's glory. God revealed to Moses his grace and compassion. In fact, he sheltered Moses in a cave, and he passed before him. Moses was allowed to see God's backside. Exodus 34, verse 30 says that when Moses descended from the mountain, the skin of his face shone. God's grace radiated from Moses' face. I, too, want to be so full of God's glory that people will know that I've been with him. After receiving God's law and seeing God's glory, Moses and the nation set out for Canaan, the land that God had promised Abraham when he came out of Ur. But when they reach the border town of Kadesh, they falter. Spies return, and they report giants in the land. And by the way, what they actually saw was Nephilim. We talked about this last week. That was the Hebrew word for giants. And that's the word used in Genesis 6 for the offspring of the women who were impregnated by fallen angels. This was the backstory of why God destroyed the human race with a flood. Demons had polluted the human gene pool and created a race of mutants. It seems God had to start over with man and Noah to preserve humanity as he created him. And apparently the same phenomena was occurring in a localized way among the tribes of Canaan. This is why God will instruct General Joshua and Israel to take no prisoners. Kill them all, even the women and the children. God isn't being cruel here. He's actually trying to save mankind. God couldn't let the same demonic evil that had previously threatened our existence to flourish again among the Canaanites and possibly spread. The sword of the returning Hebrew army was to be God's remedy. But at the time, rather than respond in faith... The Hebrews cowered in fear. They wanted to return to Egypt. The book of Numbers records their struggle. In the end, they transform a 14-day walk from Mount Sinai to Cana into 40 years of wandering around in the desert. Always remember, the longest detour you and I will ever take is the road of unbelief. And because the Hebrews failed to trust God, he punished them. The generation that exited Egypt never entered the promised land. Only the two spies, Jacob and Caleb, I'm sorry, Joshua and Caleb, who had brought back a good report and trusted God to help the nation take the land, only those two men were allotted or allowed to enter. And so write this down, wilderness wanderings. They didn't know where they were going. They wandered around in the wilderness. And so we're going to remember it by doing this. Just wander around. We don't know where we're going. We're just going to wander around. Wilderness wanderings. And how long did it last? 40 years. Now, at the end of those 40 years, Moses prepared the new generation to cross over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. He wrote down the law a second time. The word Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, means second law. 
And one of the vital themes in Deuteronomy is our responsibility to remember. You know, I think we all have the tendency to forget. I'm not sure what comes next. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 12, God warns the Hebrews, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. God didn't want the Hebrews or us today to forget the works that he had done and the lessons that we had learned. He writes down the law a second time, Deuteronomy. Moses also turned the leadership of the nation over to his assistant Joshua. God took Moses to the top of Mount Nebo where he could look out over the land of Canaan. God allowed Moses to see the promised land from a distance, but he died having never gained entrance. General Joshua, though, was an able leader. He was discipled by Moses and had learned from his example. In Joshua 1, verse 5, God promises to be with Joshua as he had been with Moses. And the first miracle that Joshua works is God rolls back the waters of the Jordan River for Israel to cross, just as Moses did when they left out of Egypt. God promises Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The first Canaanite stronghold Joshua's army faces is the city of Jericho. And the night before the big battle, Joshua is on patrol when he meets a fellow soldier. This man identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. I believe God sent this general to lead the Hebrews into battle. In Joshua 5, verse 14, it's interesting what the commander says to Joshua. He says, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. That is exactly what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai. And in the same verse, Joshua worships this man. And since the law forbid us to worship anyone but God, I believe the commander of the Lord's army is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Remember the lyrics to the old spiritual, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? No, I don't think so. I don't believe it. It was our Lord Jesus who fought the battle the next day. At Jericho, the Israeli army employed some strange tactics. They marched around the wall seven days, then seven times on the seventh day, and they blew their trumpets. By the way, they even marched on the Sabbath, a violation of the law. It was a bizarre battle plan. And often when we follow Jesus, we're asked to do things others will laugh at. But remember Jericho. Hebrews obeyed the absurd, and as a result, the walls of the city fell flat. So, write it down. Joshua leads Hebrews, the Hebrews into Canaan, into a land flowing with milk. We're going to drink our milk and honey. We're going to lick our honey. Milk and honey. And the first victory was at Jericho. Now next, Joshua sends a small battalion of soldiers to handle this tiny little city called Ai. If they could conquer Jericho, surely they could pummel the smaller target like Ai. But surprisingly, the Israelites get defeated. 
God reveals to Joshua it's because there's sin in the camp. At Jericho, a man named Achan had taken for himself some forbidden spoils. One man's sin cost the whole army a defeat. And it's only after they get rid of Achan's ill-gotten loot that the city of Ai is defeated. And I wonder how many of our churches today suffer defeat because we're also harboring sin in the camp. Well, in response to Joshua and Israel's campaign to take their land, the Canaanites rally a counterattack. Joshua meets them in the valley of Ajalon. There he needs a few more hours of daylight to complete his victory. And to help him, God causes the sun to stand still. It's another amazing miracle. It's hard to explain. Divine intervention and clever strategy combine to help Joshua take the land. He divides and then conquers. His initial victories cut through the heart of the land. Then he turns southward and wins victories. Then he turns northward and completes his conquest. Joshua 11 summarizes all of Joshua's victories. And so we'll write down, divide and conquer. So write that down. Divide, he divides the land, and then he conquers. Now after winning the land, Joshua allots tracks to each of the 12 tribes. And that's where the book of Joshua ends. God gave the land to Abraham, but for 440 years they were held up in Egypt. Then they wandered in the wilderness. Finally, Joshua brings the children of Abraham back into the land that God had promised him. Let me close our time together tonight with the same challenge that Joshua gave Israel just before he died. It's also God's challenge to us. In Joshua 24, verse 15, he says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.